Welcome to a podcast of the Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. In this edited recording of a book's sandwiched in event, Dr. Nick Geidner discusses Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future by Joy Ito and Jeff Howe. In Whiplash, Ito and Howe lay out the unprecedented changes in a world that is more complex and volatile today than at any other time in our history. Geidner is an associate professor in the School of Journalism and Electronic Media at the University of Tennessee. Geidner's research concentrates on the changing dynamic between journalism and individuals. Uh, I found this to be a really interesting book that really does a good job of talking about the future of media and the future of society. And so uh, what I titled my little talk today is A Mix of Attributes Approach to the World, uh, because I think that really uh, is something that I kept thinking throughout reading this book. Like she said, I'm an associate professor in the School of Journalism and Electronic Media at University of Tennessee. There I teach a bunch of different things. I teach our graduate level reporting course. I've taught a data journalism class. I teach or I have taught our intro quantitative methods course in our PhD program. And so I really bounce around and I do a little bit of everything. And I think that fits one of the messages of this book. And then I also direct land grant films. I got my PhD at The Ohio State University studying mass communication. And one of the professors that I studied under, took a couple classes from him, and he was on my uh, dissertation committee, was Chip Eveland. And Chip is a political communication scholar, well-recognized in our field. And one of his earlier papers in the early 2000s, I think 2001, was the mix of attributes approach to studying media. I think he was really frustrated with looking at research coming out in our field and having every new little change in new media, people coming up with new theories and reinventing the wheel for everything. We've had theories of understanding how people understand information from television news. All kinds of theories that cover a number of important outcome variables. And when we come to online news, I think in those early 2000 era researchers were really thinking of this as something so radically different that we couldn't even make it comparable to television news. And Chip came in and said, no, we can't. There's just some variables that are different. And so we can port over these theories that we've had for years looking at TV news or looking at print news, looking at how people understand or use this news, and we can apply this to the new context, but there's some kind of moderating variable that is changing this. And that's the idea of the attributes. And so if we go back to thinking about TV news versus online news, we can start quickly coming up with ways that these things are similar and ways that they vary. So online news, one of the most important things is the control that the user has. When you're watching TV, you generally don't have much control. You flip on WBIR, yeah, now you have a DVR, you can rewind, fast forward a little bit. 
but you can't choose what story you're going to view next. Getting news online, you do have a lot more control. So the variable of interest there, or the attribute, is user control. We could do the same thing with a bunch of other variables, like interactivity. Uh, we can play with thinking about textuality. So some mediums have more text than others. We can compare print to television media. And his argument was really that the overriding theories, the ideas that really pull this all together and form the underlying thought was the same. The effects, the outcomes, were just moderated by these moderating variables or attributes, as he called them. And I think this is really exactly what Ito and Howe are explaining in Whiplash. But instead of thinking of one specific thing, i.e. the media, specifically news media is what uh, Chip was interested in, they're looking at our society. And they're saying society is changing, unquestionably. Throughout the book, they give all kinds of amazing, amazing examples of ways in which our society is changing that, I mean, realistically couldn't have been possible even 10 years ago or 15 years ago because of computing power, because of social media, because of all these different vast qualitative changes in our society. The society has changed dramatically. But I think what you can take from their book is that although these are changing, there are some attributes that we can look at to start to understand the change. And why I really like that view, and why I really identified with the mix of attributes approach years ago, was that it doesn't provide for an easy solution. And I think that's one of the greatest things about this book is right off the bat, they say this isn't going to give you easy solutions on how to make money in our new society or how to make business decisions in the new society or anything like that. It's saying, here's some things that you should think about. Here's some variables that are changing and how you can start thinking about those changing variables. And I think that is vastly different than a lot of books out there that make claims about how society is changing and how we can use that to get rich quick or whatever. I'm just constantly annoyed by that because I think it is so overly simplistic and reductive that it makes their argument usually pointless. And so first, I'm going to start with uh, some problems with the book. Any big picture book is going to fall into these same traps of making things oversimplistic, playing things off of each other to create false dichotomies because, you know, they need to keep it 250 pages as opposed to 800 or whatever. And so uh, in introducing sort of what they're talking about, I'm going to regroup these in the way that I sort of saw them. And so the first one is, I think we're seeing a huge shift in how we view organizations. I mean, we can see that in any public pooling data about any institution in our society, from 
news organizations to Congress to anything. We're seeing a view, a change in the view of organizations and how we interact with organizations. And we can see that within organizations that we're in and how we view our role within those organizations. And so I think that's one of the big macro level structural changes that is driving these lower level changes that they're talking about. And so they identify three attributes of importance. If you think of modern organizations, modern groups that you're dealing with, uh, larger structures, I think you'll understand that these are present already. So the first one over here is emergence versus authority. And so this is referring to the idea of where ideas come from, where decision-making processes come from. And the classic example of emergence are uh, beehives or anthills, large, large systems involving hundreds and thousands of actors within a system. And each actor is following generally fairly simplistic roles. But through all of them following their own simplistic roles, become large meta-level societies. And what they're arguing here is that these kind of structures where ideas emerge out of the society are stronger and going to be the future of business and organizations rather than top-down authority. And I think we see that in a number of things, like any kind of crowdsourcing project that you see out there. You're seeing people following simple rules, doing simple tasks, and these are creating larger superstructures. We see this in organizations, but I think it is a problematic thing for especially older organizations to be okay with, because it is losing that central power. But losing that central power can be incredibly beneficial in numerous other ways. Another one is the idea of disobedience versus compliance. And although I think this is one of their weaker arguments and one of the, the weaker ways to say that the society is changing, I think it is important that businesses nowadays accept a fair level of disobedience. Organizations really need to allow for that kind of play, for people to experiment and to follow paths that might not be seen as the most productive paths. I think this is one of the key ways that innovation arises. I forget who they quote, but they say, nobody has won a Nobel Prize following the rules. And I think that's true. I think that's always been true. Innovation comes from deviance. It is really an important role of managers now to try to harness deviance so they can be used in a positive manner. And I think that's the bigger argument that he's making. Not that this has changed. I think this has always been the way that innovation occurs. But I think the acceptance of managers to allow for this kind of disobedience, allow for this kind of play, is something that management 
in years past didn't really accept. And I think that really ties to the next point, which is the idea of diversity versus ability. And I've got wording issues with how they frame that as diversity versus ability uh, and saying that you can't have both, I think is, again, simplistic. But what they're trying to argue for is that diversity on its own has benefits beyond just nice, happy, pro-social things. And what they're arguing is that diversity and diversity of viewpoints is where innovation can come from. And so two people that come from very different places, different life experiences, are going to have different ideas on how to solve a problem. And so within a business, within an organization, having more worldviews, that can potentially solve the problem and solve it in an efficient manner can be more beneficial. Organizations have not been good at allowing a lot of different voices in for numerous reasons. We have credentialing. We have systems in place that we think are to the benefit of everyone. But we want to try to play with this idea. And we want to try to bring diversity into our organization, not just because we want to give everybody a chance, but because it can be incredibly beneficial as a business decision, as a structural decision. And I think, again, I don't think this is vastly different than ever before, but I think the role of how we view organizations and how management has to view the organization has changed. There is a lot of flattening of organizations. The old hierarchies that were present before are not as appreciated or as efficient. And so we need to calibrate for that and we need our management to calibrate for that. So the first section was how we view organizations. The second is really about how we make business decisions. And I thought that there were four of the nine points that really came together well here. The first is pull versus push. The next is compass versus maps, risk versus safety, and reliance versus strength. I think these are the ones that are really easy to view in our society. The first is pull versus push. And I think the best example of this is Amazon. They don't hold tons and tons of product. It's not like Walmart, where Walmart pushes a lot of product to us, and then we go to the store, look through the shelves, and pick out the product that we want. Instead, I tell Amazon what I want, and they calibrate their system based off what I want. And so this is a very different way of thinking. Instead of having authority, like talked in the last one, dictating the marketplace, we have the marketplace dictating the content or dictating the product. And I think that is a radical shift, and that's really because of some major changes in you know, supply chain management, in manufacturing, and things like that, that have been able to make really small runs of product, not only possible, but able to be at a very similar price point to incredibly large runs of products. 
and then also infrastructures like Amazon's, infrastructures like other global organizations that are moving product have made it incredibly cheap for a business owner or for an entrepreneur to come in and say, I'm going to make a run of 5,000 widgets and, you know, distribute them across the world. And that's very different than before. And you're seeing the organizations that really rely on the long tail kind of mentality that we don't need to sell a million of one product. We need to sell one of a million products are really succeeding. And it is shocking to see that long tail stuff. Like, you know, I publish a lot of my lessons. And so, you know, I make little guides for my students to follow for different tools. I put them on a website called Medium. And Medium's a public website. I made a guide to using the uh, Canon 60 for video production. I, every semester I'd have to explain it and I'd print out my PowerPoints. That got annoying. I just give them a website, an address every semester, never going to change. Well, then I started noticing I get an email from Medium each week looking at the number of people that read my stories. And, you know, not many read them because I'm not trying to build you know, an audience or something. So like people will stumble across the story. It will be 10 of this story or I'll sign something and 30 students will read it. But that post on the Canon 6D every single week gets 175 to 225 views. Every single week for the last 32 weeks. That's a great example and one that always boggles my mind about the long tail, that there are, you know, 200 people every single week that want to read that post. Those long tail businesses are always going to be more successful nowadays because the cost of distribution is so low that if you can provide a lot and make it good content and diverse and things people want, a niche, then you're going to succeed. Next is the idea of compass versus maps. And they were trying to build a little bit more depth into the book, I think, with this one. But the idea of, you know, we don't have clear guides anymore. A map is useful if nothing changes. Nothing changes on my commute, so I could pull out a map from five years ago and get home no problem. But if the roads are constantly moving, a map is useless. I need a compass instead to be able to head west. And that's their argument. I think it makes sense. I think it falls into actually the next two points. And it is a short chapter, so I think they like the analogy, and so they built a chapter around it, which, you know, good for them, because I like the analogy too. It's fantastic. But I think the next two actually overlap that or fall within that. And that's the idea of risk versus safety and resilience versus strength. I think in the old era, big, safe companies were the successful companies. You look at GE. 10 years ago, got an inheritance. I, I asked someone like, oh, where should I put this? And they suggested a mutual fund. I put some in there. And then they suggested GE because that's the safest stock in the world. And if you look at 
what, the 100 years before I invested in GE, it is the safest stock in the world. But if you look at the last 10 years, it's not. Uh, yet it still is one of the biggest, one of the least risky companies out there. But you have quick, agile, risky companies out there being ultimately more successful than GE, which is what hurts GE. When there's a bunch of companies that are quick and agile and making huge return on investment, GE's 4% return on investment just doesn't drive the market. And so I think GE is a great example of this because, yeah, they were successful. And the underlying structure hasn't changed. As a matter of fact, they got rid of the biggest mess of their business, NBC. And so they should be doing better, but they're not. I think companies now really need to be okay with more risk. They need to be okay with failure. Now, that's not saying you take stupid risks. You need to mitigate that risk, and you need to plan for resilience. You need to make your risk in a smart way. And so you're investing small amounts of money in really risky things, but a lot of those things, so you can see what's going to succeed. And I think Google is a great example of that. They give their employees 20% of their time to just play around. That's a huge risk. That's a huge investment that they're making in just playing with things. They probably don't create a lot of benefits. They create a few benefits. The rest of them are junk. But occasionally, one of these ideas that they've invested a little bit amount of money into, 20% of one person's salary, becomes a thing. And they say, okay, that's the thing. Let's invest $10 million in that. Let's put a whole team on that instead of just this guy doing it as his side project. And that's how some of these big things in Google have happened because they started playing with this product. They started playing with this idea. And if you divide it out, that risk out appropriately, you can give a lot of people or a lot of ideas a fair shake while still mitigating your risk. I think another great example of this is how Bill and Melinda Gates are running their foundation. A huge, huge project. I, I think their endowment produces like over $2 billion every year. So that means they can just play with $2 billion, you know, forever and not have to worry about touching the principal, which is insane. So they could have done anything, but they just started these micro-grants. You know, I applied for one at one point, so now I get all the emails. I think four or five times a year currently, they give out 10, 12 grants for $100,000. And so they're giving out, really, of their pie, an incredibly small amount, a few million dollars. But they're giving it out a lot, and they let people try. And all of these, you can apply for follow-up funding. And so if that first round works you can apply for a million dollars in the second round. And then if that million dollar round produces results, then 
I don't know, I guess you talk to Bill or something and get, you know, whatever you need. They're dividing out the risk, and most of them will fail. But occasionally one will succeed, and that success hopefully covers all the failures. And so I think not only is that a smart investment strategy now, but it also is a way to stay resilient. It's a way to stay agile. If you need to change, you can quickly change things up. Whereas GE, they can't turn that boat fast enough, literally because they make boats uh, as well as engines and all that kind of stuff. And so they literally, I mean, they just, they can't change that. They're getting engine orders for three years from now in their, their engine. I mean, that's not something that they can change. Uh, whereas other more agile, newer organizations can make those changes quickly. I, I do think it's important to note, and one of the things that they didn't note is how unfair the structure is for older businesses. You know, I think the New York Times is a great example. They bought the Boston Globe. Boston Globe's a fantastic paper. Um, my wife interned there. Some of their parking's pretty remote, so you can get a shuttle from another parking lot back to the building. And my wife had to do that occasionally. And the guy that drove the bus, she got to know him, well, he was on a lifetime contract, and he was one of the pressmen for the Boston Globe. The machine that he worked, the job that he did, doesn't exist anymore, but he has a lifetime contract. So he's getting paid 80 some thousand dollars a year to drive the shuttle back and forth from the parking lot. You know, a place like BuzzFeed, where my brother works, they don't have those lifetime employees, old pension obligations, all these other things that are dragging down the Times or the Globe or the Washington Post because they've been in business for eight years compared to the hundred years of some of these other organizations. And so, it is inherently unfair, especially because the barrier of entry is so low now. And I don't think they touch on that enough. You know, they make big criticisms about these old companies, but they don't sort of acknowledge that part of that money, part of that loss, part of the reason that they can't be agile is because they have to pay pensions to their employees and we don't want them to stop doing that. And so I think that's a thing that really gets overlooked in this section. And then the final section is just thinking about how we view knowledge and thinking about, you know, how we build a society. Uh, knowledge is the base of our society. And if we don't have clear knowledge, we can't do any of the earlier points. They identify two. Well, I identified two. They identified nine just general ones. The first one is practice versus theory. And the idea of practice versus theory is sort of a circular argument, I think, is that we need to be agile, we need to be able to change rapidly. And so part of our, our learning, part of the way that we can create knowledge is just through doing things and trying things. You know, we don't have maps for the future. We just sort of need to get out with our compass and walk around. And we can't rely on the old theories. I think that's short-sighted because I think a lot of stuff is consistent, is unchanged. I mean, humans are still humans. And although our systems change, we still follow fairly straightforward characteristics. And so I think it's sort of circular. If we practice something, 
That's a very rudimentary experiment. And so through that, we're building knowledge or we're building frameworks. And while they say, you know, we should use play instead of theory or practice instead of theory, I think he's overstating that argument because if we're practicing, if we're doing, we're doing to create replicable systems, which is what theory is all about. I understand why he's doing that and why they're arguing for that. That chapter is really about education and how we should be teaching students, employees to be willing to just play and to play outside the box if they need to. I think it undercuts actually some of the other arguments that he's making. And the second one is systems versus objects. This is the last chapter, and I think it's the most important in thinking about this all through a societal lens, is that I think now more than ever, we need to think about the ripple effect of the decisions that we're making. I think we see in the society that a lot has changed rapidly. Nine times out of 10, nobody making those decisions has said, I want to make something that is going to do bad things for our society. Everyone's made things with, you know, the intent of doing good, generally. I mean, there's some bad people, don't get me wrong. You know, we think of the media environment, you think of Facebook, you think of Craigslist. I mean, they hurt the news industry for millions and millions of dollars. I don't think Craig Newmark was creating that, thinking, I'm going to cause journalists to lose their jobs. Ha, ha, ha. No, he was thinking, here's a more simple way to do this task. We need to think more systemically. We need to think of how our decisions are going to affect the system that we're in. Even within our daily lives, we need to think about that. Last time I was here talking, it was during the fake news symposium. You know, one of the main points was that during the 2016 election, nobody who shared, liked, commented on any of the fake news was thinking, oh, I'm subverting democracy right now. I'm spying for the Russians. Like, nobody thought that. They liked it because they thought that ridiculous thing about Hillary primarily or maybe Donald Trump was funny. And so they liked it. And that was a small thing that wasn't, that wasn't, oh, I'm, I'm going to stick it to the man. This was just a simple, light decision, but it was tied to a system. And so they liked it, so more people organically that followed them saw it. More of those people liked it, which led to more people liking it, which led to more people liking it, more people liking it, and eventually we have a large effect on a system. And I think that's really the takeaway uh, that's why I think they did a great job of laying out this last chapter as all of this, all that we're talking about in each variable and each attribute is its own thing, but it all ties into our society and everything's interconnected now. And so I think that's really the most important takeaway is that we live in a much, much smaller world than we did before. It's a smaller, faster world. And the decisions that we make might be small. Uh, they can ripple and cause large effects on our system. And so 
I guess, how do these play out? Are there any ways that, you know, thinking about these different ideas that they do play out in our lives? I think that's something that we need to think about and talk about. So what are you keeping your eye on now as, uh, for, in terms of the ripple effects that they will cause? I have more ambivalence and cognitive dissonance about social media than anything else in the world. I started teaching last year a social journalism class. You know, I was teaching the class as we were learning the details of the effects social media had on the 2016 election. I am torn on the overarching good or bad for society that social media has. And I think that's a thing that I am not just looking at, but really having an existential crisis about. Like, I... I mean, it's really, I can think of no better analogy. I'm from Youngstown, Ohio, as she mentioned. Uh, I went to the Ohio State University. I keep my Ohio State Michigan football ticket in my wallet. I love football. I grew up watching football. You know, we did the, the turkey cookout, the Boy Scout turkey cookout. We brought TVs so we could watch the Michigan game. Like, that's where I come from. I'm at a big football school. The more and more we learn about all the problems that football causes, the more I see it as a moral hardship to watch football and to support college football. And I love it. I mean, I love it. I love everything. I mean, I remember to this moment the first time walking into the Ohio Stadium. I love it. But more and more, it's, it's, a, it's a drag. The money, the, the injuries, all these different things. And I feel identical about social media. It's great. There's so many benefits. There's so many ways that it has enriched my life. There's so many ways that it's helped people in any number of situations from the really dramatic, like the hurricanes and stuff like that, how people got together through social media to save, literally save the lives of other people. But then you see all the bad. I mean, you know, take a dark trip down uh, any of my brother's replies when he's a legal editor for BuzzFeed News. I mean, he's at the Supreme Court reporting on the travel ban case. You know, look at his replies tonight. I mean, you know, the racist, disgusting things that will be said to him for just reporting on a case going on like... I mean, I think it's problematic. And so I think that that's where a lot of my headspace is right now, thinking about media, is thinking about how we harness this for good and how local news can actually benefit and how local news can play a role in shaping social media within a community. I have nothing to do with Facebook. Don't trust it. But I'm, I'm always like second shift on that. My daughter serves up what I need to know from it, you know, and sends me little clips and all that, uh, filters that. But I also am very aware that for years I have been a presence on that, not just because of her, you know, showing photos and stuff, but other people, you know, you, you can have, want to have nothing to do with it, and yet you're involved. Yeah. I and, mean, there's so many parts of this. Yeah, I think from a policy standpoint, data policy 
there's mm -hmm. very little that dictates how people use our data, which is, I mean, at this point, completely insane. You know, even like simple things. I did some research on the uh, NPLEX database, NPLEX, which is how they track whether you can get more Claritin D or not. You know, you have to show your license. At its heart, that's medical data that they're sharing with the third party. I started doing some research because I got denied unrightfully. I needed my Claritin D. And so I got really annoyed. And so I started looking into it. And there is no information about this company. There's no regulation and there's no oversight on how they're using that data. They don't even need to release to you your full data. And that's insane. And yeah, we can think of, oh, that's just the pseudoephedrine data set. Bah, who cares? But that's emblematic of a lot of government data. A lot of data that's shipped off to third parties, and we have no clue how it's being used, and there is no oversight. And so to me, this Facebook thing was just a matter of time. And, you know, it's shocking and appalling that the different numerous data leaks that involved our credit card information, per other personal data, has not triggered this. Mm -hmm. But it was Facebook because everybody loves Facebook. It's and like a, t a time bomb. It's yeah. going to go oh, off yeah. sometime. And I would definitely, I mean, there's a number of good books that are related to this. I would suggest Yokai Bankler's The Wealth of Networks, Timothy Wu's The Master Switch. But then for the fiction lovers out there, I would suggest Eggers, The Circle. I think that's a, f a fun read. There's a movie of it, too. Uh, and DeLillo, Don DeLillo's White Noise is also uh, another fascinating uh, look at some of these changes. Well, what a wonderful way to end a great hour. Thank you so much well, to everybody you. for coming and to you, Dr. Geidner, for leading us through this. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to and sharing the Knox County Public Library podcast. Find other episodes and life-changing resources at knoxlib.org.